This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. Hi there, I'm Lale Arakoglu, and this is Women Who Travel. Today, as we head into Super Tuesday, we're talking to overseas reporters about their first weeks on the road covering the 2024 election. We want to know what it's like to report on American politics from an outsider's POV, but also how they navigate the unpredictability of travel, say, unforeseen blizzards and cancelled flights, and find time to explore for themselves. Every fourth American still has some roots somewhere in Germany. So they are all so happy and so joyful. And they all say, eins, zwei, drei, auf Wiedersehen or something <laughs> like that. And they are really willing and telling us like, oh, yeah, my great granddad is from here and there. The people in Switzerland view Florida as a large retirement home hit by hurricanes and can be dangerous at some times as a vacation place as the Disneyland location. There's a really strong base knowledge that Canadians they do consume so much American news and American entertainment that, you know, if they're watching a political show like The Daily Show or something of that nature, Canadians follow along. So I don't have to get too, too into the weeds. That was German TV's Gudrun Engel, followed by Swiss-French reporter Françoise Weilhammer, who's based in Geneva, and CBC's Katie Simpson in Canada. Before we dive into all things America and traveling to cover the 2024 election, Where are you chatting to me from today, Good Run? Well, I'm in our studio. We are the biggest and oldest foreign affairs studio that we have from German radio and TV, and it's based in Washington, D.C., in the heart of Georgetown. Do you know D.C. well? Are you still finding your feet there? Well, I've been visiting D.C. quite often throughout my life, but I took over as a bureau chief here one and a half years ago. You are approaching it from a European perspective and a German perspective. What do your audiences look to understand and what are you trying to show them? What stories are important to the German audience? I think our main goal is to make 
our audience understand about American society, how it works, how fractured it actually is to make them understand that we are quite different culturally, even though it doesn't look like from first-hand perspective. Tell me a little bit about those differences. Well, you see, like Germans or Europeans in general always feel like, oh yeah, we are so close to the United States because we have the same movies we watch in the theater, even though they are dubbed in Germany, and we listen to the same music in the radio. We've all had a hamburger at one point in our life, and we know everything about the US, even though this is not correct. So culture-wise, Europeans and Americans tick completely different. And it that's a question of history. So The United States are built on on the main two values like freedom and autonomy, right? Whereas Europeans always look for security and structure. And those things are quite the opposite. So that makes societies tick completely different. Yeah, I've never heard someone put it so clearly before. And as, you know, as a British person, that's so familiar to me. Yeah, wow, I feel like you've just like clarified something for me. The US electoral system is very unique <laughs> to the United States. Unique, yeah, unique. <laughs> how does it differ from Germany and how do you try and lay it out in plain terms, plain digestible terms for a German audience? Does a German audience care about the minutiae of that system? Well, I think they don't care about every single detail. I think they are also more amazed if we tell them like, okay, you cannot just take the system you know about elections and then just transfer it to the United States because the system here is completely different. If you want an example, if we talk about uh, who is allowed to vote, for instance, so here you have to register, you have to have a driver's license or a photo ID from a university or whatever, but it's your choice that you register to go and vote. While in Germany, once you're born, you're registered automatically. You cannot not be registered. When you turn 16, you get a photo ID. You have to have a photo ID. That's compulsory by law. And they know where to find you. And once you turn 18, you automatically, once there is an election, you get a letter with your official number and saying like, okay, you're allowed to vote. And you know, you say make your choice, but we know in the US that often that, that choice can come with obstacles when it comes to registering to vote. Whereas if you were registered at birth, that in theory takes some of those obstacles away, correct? Sure. I mean, we don't have the issue, for instance, of the, I think here it's 4.1 million possible voters that have been to jail at some point in life and they are not allowed to vote anymore. How are people receiving a German outlet showing up? Do you think they're more willing to talk to you because you're outsiders of sorts? If we want to talk to politicians here in the United States, no matter whether we ask somebody, a senator or someone, or a mayor somewhere, American politics don't talk to us. We are just not relevant for them. They would rather talk to WNDU 16 South Bend or something like that if they have voters there that are likely to elect them somewhere. So politicians are completely out of the way. Um, they don't talk to us normally. But Americans are so happy and so polite if you show up somewhere. I, I also sense the sometimes even hate towards the media. But as soon as we say, yeah, but you know, we are German TV, and then the ice is kind of broken. So, yeah. Who have been some of the most memorable voters that you've spoken to? Well, I've been traveling a lot in different states from different points of view. 
And the most amazing is a lady called Sharon, and she's a super maga. She's one of the front row Joes. So those are the guys who are really hardcore Trump fans, and they are at every event and at every rally, and they always in the first row when he speaks. So they call themselves the front row Joes. She invited us to her home in Tennessee. I went uh, camping with her. So we were completely immersed in her family and she was super lovely and super welcoming while on the same time she was repeating some, well, things that we would clearly say are conspiracy theories. And, and that's weird when you meet someone and you sit uh, outside at a fire pit and, and you talk and you hear the coyotes howling and you're in the middle of Tennessee and... You get along very well and then you feel that there are really things that you cannot agree on. We met someone who is referred to as a rhino, Republican in name only in Wyoming, like really a cowboy. We went horseback riding in Cody, Wyoming, great rodeo city. Uh, Western town, and, and he was really depressed about being a Republican for generations and now being in the situation where he feels like, okay, I'm a Republican, but I cannot really vote Republican anymore. We met some iron workers in Kentucky. They say, like, we build America and we are the ones now having all those jobs because the unions work well. We were traveling back and forth the whole country and trying to get different ideas on how people feel about the whole situation right now. Thinking about that camping trip in Tennessee, which... That was cold too, by the way. <laughs> Tennessee gets cold in the winter. <laughs> yeah, now I know that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you thought you were like going south for yes, some sun. Exactly. <laughs> what is your average day like when you're on the election trail. You're kind of near the beginning of this year's, but what do those travels look like? Because they're pretty grueling and it's long, long days. Yeah, so I'm super lucky because I have a great team. Unfortunately, we have to see a six-hour time difference, but if we go west, it's getting worse uh, production-wise. So uh, it means uh, less sleep. We try to grab food wherever it's possible. Always tricky if you have vegetarians in the team, though, <laughs> in the United States still. And also how a colleague phrased it once, never miss a piss. That's an important rule. <laughs> that feels, that's, that's quite a good sort of life rule, I think. <laughs> you can apply that to a lot of regular trips as well. Definitely. You can use it for your family, too. <laughs> Although I have to ask whether that um, colleague learned from some bad experience and that's that's why it became their uh, mantra. Yeah, actually, actually yes. Uh, from, <laughs> from, from a trip in Alaska where it was really tricky to when you're on the road for a long time and there's basically nothing <laughs> but just nature, but no trees to the right and to the left. And you're driving through some spectacular landscapes. What of America are you seeing in between these stops? Well, we try to see as much as possible. The problem there is that we most of the time, if you drive and travel 
on a job purpose, then time is always limited. So in my free time, I feel that I want to stop instead of being driven by a schedule or an air date. Tell me a bit more about trips on your free time. Where are you planning to go? And I guess, how are you, are you on your own? How are you approaching them? Um, so the last big road trip I took was uh, circling New Mexico and Colorado in two and a half weeks. And uh, this summer, I haven't decided whether I go to Utah or California. And um, yeah, when we come here or when correspondents come here, the first thing we have is like a map of the United States. We all have a map in our office and we use those pins to pinpoint where we've been. And everybody says like, okay, I'm still missing South Dakota. I have to find a story in South Dakota. What's going on in South Dakota? I'm thinking of this big map in your bureau with all the yes. pins on it. Is there one place on that map that you're like, I have to get there before November and why? Well, right now I'm working really hard on selling a story on ice fishing in Wisconsin <laughs> because I feel that Wisconsin will be the battleground. I, I think the last time or for the midterms it had been Pennsylvania. I think this time when we have a look at the swing states, I think Wisconsin is the one we have to keep in mind. Michigan also. But right now I feel I really need to go to Wisconsin even more because Door County is the county where they usually come up with the results that is then the same as in the rest of the country. What's the ice fishing story exactly? Well, I mean, I do TV, so you need uh, a setting. And, you know, the United States comes up with spectacular nature settings. So, and I want to talk to people. In Door County, they have, uh, there's an amazing guy. He is running the local Harley-Davidson shop. And Harley-Davidson turned 120 last year. And it's like the most American way of freedom, blah, blah, blah. But as we cannot ride a Harley-Davidson now in winter, they all go ice fishing. And uh, so I thought like, okay, let's go ice fishing. Let's talk to people being relaxed, sitting on the ice, waiting for whatever they fish. I don't know that yet. <laughs> And understand how they feel about the whole situation. Do they still talk to each other when they are from two different um, parties? How how are they dealing with the with the situation and also with the pressure that everybody will go there at one point and talk about Wisconsin? Um, ice fishing, never done it. I'm going to need you to come back on and talk about that trip once you've done it because I'm already captivated by it. After the break. A dispatch from a reporter who's back in Switzerland after making a documentary about US voters. Are you looking for ideas to make your life happier, healthier, more productive and more creative? Listen to Happier with Gretchen Rubin, a weekly podcast hosted by two sisters. I'm Gretchen Rubin, the number one best-selling author of The Happiness Project. And I'm Elizabeth Kraft, a Hollywood showrunner. Each week, we share fresh insights and practical solutions, such as follow the one-minute rule, choose a one-word theme for the year, or design your summer. Listen and follow the podcast, Happier with Gretchen Rubin. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. 
So my name is Françoise Weilamer, a TV reporter at the Swiss Public Television in Geneva. I'm working for a program called the Temps Présent. It's a very old and, uh, I have to say, prestigious program that's been aired since more than 50 years. We do uh, long documentaries, and I've just uh, finished filming one of these to answer a difficult question. What if Trump returns to the White House? Is that a threat to democracy? So uh, we decided to go first to Florida. We flew in from uh, Geneva, Florida, because it's considered as a, a lab of some kind of authoritarian uh, uh, government with uh, Ron DeSantis policies. And also because uh, I read that um, some important right-wing figures uh, are attracted to uh, Florida, especially to Sarasota, which is this beautiful town south of Tampa. So uh, basically, we arrived there like five weeks ago. Some troubles uh, when we arrived because no luggage. This happens many times. So uh, we had to wait two days for luggage, which is, I'm telling you that because it helped me. I, well, anyway, I tried to use it when I went to a store to buy some makeup, Macy's. So this uh, sales saleswoman uh, was very nice, connected me to another saleswoman who is a Republican, who connected me to some other Republican woman. And we decided to rent Airbnbs because it's really uh, difficult to eat in restaurants and every day for five weeks. Though we did go out, uh, obviously, to some diners and restaurants to talk with people and listen to the Vox Pop there, as we as we call it, the the opinions of many people of the street. This is this is just to emerge ourselves in the situation, and uh, I think the most difficult part was to get in touch with this uh, far-right, very conservative, ultra-maga people, because they don't even answer to mails. I mean, I send up, I counted them, I sent 35 mails to different Republican organizations, and the only one who answered me was the spokesperson for one Republican representative from Nebraska. <laughs> and this spokesperson, a man, answered me, yes, uh, I like Switzerland. You know, I dated once a Swiss girl. Um, I guess that's why he answered me. But he kind of wrote a few lines about how nice it was dating this lady and detailing where he met her and where she was from in Switzerland. I asked for an interview of his representative and I got the interview, which is quite rare because as a Swiss journalist, American representatives there have no interest in uh, talking to us. The people in Switzerland, they see mostly Florida as a vacation place, as the Disneyland <laughs> location. And we are going to show them maybe the other side of this how and why far-right leaders like General Flynn settled down there, and how uh, local action can have an effect on the national level. So when I came there, obviously there are many old people. We were always shocked when we saw some young people. Uh, they are not <laughs> very common, at least in Sarasota. 
And then I discovered a whole other aspect of that, uh, meaning that in Sarasota, for example, there's a very lively cultural art scene. There are good restaurants. Uh, uh, people are really nice. And then when you dig in, what you see, what's really happening uh, on the political ground, which is another story, completely other story and more dark story. We thought sometimes Florida is known as the sunshine state. Um, sometimes we were worrying if the sun will not set down on Florida and it would be a more darker state. Coming up, how the snow in Iowa surprised Katie Simpson of CBC and how getting trapped in a small town became the story. What if you could poke, prod, and explore the mysteries of nature from wherever you are? Hi, I'm Nate Hedgie, the host of Outside In, an award-winning podcast from New Hampshire Public Radio. We explore the fun, dangerous, oftentimes uncomfortable questions about the natural world. Like, what happens when climate change comes knocking at your door? Unfortunately, when you find out things that you don't want to hear, the question is how you swallow that. Or what happens to our bodies when we die? All of the germs and bacteria and everything is saying, okay, baby, we got to get rid of this person. (laughs) Outside In isn't just a show for thru-hikers and conservationists. It's a podcast for anyone who's ready to embrace their curiosity about the natural world and have fun doing it. He left us. He left us. (laughs) He left us. But that's not what What I'm going to do. (laughs) Listen every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. You're a foreign correspondent for CBC in Canada. Is this the first election you've covered or have you done other election years before? So this is my second American election. And let me tell you how different already it is, given the campaign we experienced during COVID in 2020. You're speaking to a Canadian audience What do you want them to know and understand about the story that's unfolding here in the 2024 election? Canadians watch Saturday Night Live. They watch the late night talk shows. Uh, There's just this easy flow between American culture and Canadian culture. So a lot of these political figures that might not necessarily get sort of uh, a lot of mainstream attention, Canadians know about them. Like you could say Marjorie Taylor Greene, the a uh, congresswoman from Georgia who is a known conspiracy theorist who has said some pretty um, outlandish and offensive things uh, on the public record, and Canadians know about her. You could say George Santos. Uh, Canadians know them. So my job is to sort of uh, make sure that Canadians understand the journey we take them on when we go on the road to tell them a story about politics. You know, I think <laughs> you're bringing up Marjorie Taylor Greene and George Santos, you know, Obviously, I'm from the UK, but I've lived in the US for a long time and I'm very gripped by American politics. How do you make a Marjorie Taylor Greene easy to understand? I feel like there's so many sort of context clues you need to kind of really start to understand what that means on a sort of a, a, on a bigger picture. How do you, how do you make it easy and digestible for an audience that isn't kind of in the hurricane? It's all about context. So if you're going to introduce her, you know, introduce her as a lawmaker who does have a lot of influence within conservative circles in this moment. And then you bring in the past, the controversial past, bring in a little bit of background so that Canadians can better understand. 
One great thing about uh, the network I work for, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, where CBC News, is that our main flagship television news program is an hour long. And so we get a little bit more time, a little bit more room to tell our stories. And that is really, really helpful when it comes to providing context. You know, another complex thing is the electoral system itself, which, again, God, I I, I mean, I, I can't vote. But it's taken me a long time to wrap my head around how the electoral system works and living through a few elections in the US now. How does it differ from the Canadian electoral system and are people bewildered by it? I don't know if Canadians would know the exact ins and outs of sort of what goes on before something becomes a law in the United States or how someone gets elected in the United States. But generally, there is a really significant amount of knowledge there. Like I can go on television, talk about the primaries. Everyone in Canada will know what I'm talking about. You know, when it's a specific caucus, when I talk about the Iowa caucuses, you kind of explain. So this caucus is this wild thing where everyone gets together in a small room and they if it's the Democrats, they line up and, you know, they actually physically move their bodies to the person to the area where you want to support someone. Republicans, it's a little more uh, muted, but it's still these like small community gatherings. When you get into those sort of weeds, Canadians do follow along, but off the top of their head, they're not going to know that. What has your travel looked like so far? Because Iowa just took place. You know, in Home Alone, when all the family is running to the airport and they're running through <laughs> O'Hare Airport and the music's going, that was us getting to the airport in Washington, D.C. to make our flight to Iowa. And we didn't even make it. So originally, we were supposed to go in on the Friday. And on the Friday, the storm was going to be hitting. So on the Thursday, we said, OK, we better rebook something and get out right now. Every other news organization seemed to have the exact same idea. So all of the flights within within 30 minutes booked up. We were able to just barely get on a flight. And um, by the time we got to St. Louis, um, we had like a four-hour layover or so. About three hours into that layover, they decided to cancel the next leg of our oh flight. Oh, my God, don't tell me. You were in a U-Haul with a brass band driving to... Oh, <laughs> basically, basically, that was us. So we're like, oh, no. And so we knew that, like, there'd be no flights the next day and um, we, there was nothing else. So um, we went down to the the sort of check-in area. Uh, we got them to fish our eight cases out of the belly of the plane. We went over to the car rental place at the airport in St. Louis and packed up like an SUV. And we're like, we're going to drive as far north as we can until the roads are unsafe. This is a crew of three women, by the way, which, by the way, for television, for a three-woman crew is incredibly rare. I was going to say, that sounds like a bit of a unicorn crew. It is. And we do a lot of stuff together. and We're very ah. good. So it's very nice. Um, if I do say so myself. My colleague Liza is from this part of Canada called Manitoba, which is known for its horrific snowstorms. And so she knows how to deal with this. Um, if there had been no weather, we could have made it to Des Moines in six hours. At this point, it's like 9 p.m. So we're hoping for like, I don't know, maybe a 3 a.m. arrival time. We hit the snow about two hours into our drive and then have to slow down immediately. And so it got real spicy, if I do say so myself. And so we we made it just barely into southern Iowa. And as soon as we crossed the, the state line, there was this um, wonderful roadside motel that we called at like 1230 in the morning or one o'clock in the morning. And so we pulled into that hotel um, and we thought, OK, we'll leave the next day. The snow continued at such an intense pace, along with the uh, the high winds, we're like, uh, okay, so we hunkered down for the day and we did some like um, daily news content. So we, we talked about the storm. So like the some of the campaign events got canceled. Some of them were turned into digital events. And so we sort of hunkered down. We ended up staying at this hotel, this roadside motel 
for three days because we couldn't get out. But the place we were trapped in, in the 2020 election, voted overwhelmingly for Donald Trump. And so we were in this county that was considered the heart of Trump country. So we ended up sort of driving around town the way we could. It's a community of like 9,000 people. We went to the local bar to go interview people. um, And we sort of drove around looking for people shoveling their driveways or people who had political signs on their front lawns, went and knocked on their door to see if they'd talk to us or interrupted people as they were shoveling their driveways. So you make it work. How easy is it to step out of the panic? A snowstorm in Iowa is no reason to panic. You panic when, like, I was in Ukraine. I was in Lviv when Lviv got bombed um, in Ukraine in 2022. And we didn't sort of panic then. You just go into, okay, uh, we're here to do our job. We're here to tell a story. And uh, let's do the best job that we can so that Canadians can understand what it's really like to be here. Um, generally I find that election campaigns are a little bit, you can have a, like, you can have a moment and it's not like heavy, 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 heavy. Uh, cause you, you go to like, we travel a lot for mass shootings in America. And there's this one time we were in Louisiana to tell a story about, um, the possibility that Roe v. Wade could be overturned. This was before it happened. And we'd gotten permission from an abortion clinic in Louisiana, Shreveport. And so we spent our morning talking to young women before they were getting their abortion about how would their lives change if they didn't have access to abortion. And it's heavy, heavy stuff. And we're talking to the abortion provider and we're in there for three hours in the morning. And then we get out, we start getting all these phone alerts that there's been a shooting in Texas. And we're like, okay, well, if it's like, we Googled where it was um, and it was Uvalde. And we're like, okay, so that's like a, we Googled how far it was to drive. I'm like, okay, it's a 10 hour drive, but we didn't know what it was at that time. And we didn't know it was, we knew it was an elementary school, but we didn't know how serious it was. And we now know what the response was from police and the dereliction of duty that was, that took place there. And just the horrific response by first responders there. We didn't understand it was serious. We, did, we didn't know what it was. And so as soon as we sort of got the first update from the afternoon that it was elementary school and there were, I believe it was 18 children were dead, uh, we had to stop what we were doing. We'd, we'd finished our shoot at the abortion clinic. We'd eaten a salad for lunch and we were preparing to travel to Baton Rouge and then we had to stop everything. Uh, we had to check out of our hotel and then we had to drive across the state of Texas, which was a good 10, 11 hours. But then we got stuck in tornado warning. So we, it was the same crew, my colleague Liza, who knows how to drive in really bad weather, my colleague Jen and myself. And so we made it about six hours into the drive and the rain was so bad. And these trucks are going, transport trucks are going on the highway, still going like 80 miles an hour. And it was so terrifying. We had pulled over three different times. The rain broke up just enough for us to pull off to a hotel my hotel room smelled like cat pee, but we did not care. We sleep for four hours. The rain had stopped. You get up and you just drive and you push and push and push until you get to Uvalde. And so we made it to Uvalde, I want to say by like, I think eight or nine the next morning, because it was still such a huge drive and we made it there. And it was just awful. It was just awful. It's like, no matter what you're doing on your sort of your planned work trip, nothing ever goes as planned. You pack for more than what you're expecting. And you just have to be ready to, you know, embrace whatever it's going to be and just try your hardest every day. What does downtime look like? Honestly, this is going to sound like the saddest, most pathetic answer that you are probably going to have on this program. But if our hotel has like a restaurant in the parking lot, it has generally been like the recipe for success. (laughs) 
So we were covering um, uh, some changes in border policy. We're down in El Paso. And we happened to stay at this hotel that had this authentic Mexican uh, restaurant in the parking lot where the family lived in Mexico and would travel into the United States every day to cook at this restaurant. Our main program goes to air at 9 p.m. So a lot of the times we are working till 10, 1030 or late. They stayed open for us and we had like $10 tacos and beers like six nights in a row. Like it's like super not healthy, extremely unhealthy. Um, but like the thing is like, we are so tired. We're so uncool. And I bet those El Paso tacos tasted fantastic after a long day. So good. Long, hot day in the 100 degree heat. Oh, it was... but those those are the moments that we sort of remember and you have to like take a pause and take a deep breath. Um, they're few and far between, but when you get them, just t- you got to embrace them. Well, Katie, thank you so much. If people want to follow along with you this year on X or Instagram or your bylines, where is best for them to find you? Okay, so we'll go official. So cbcnews.ca is our website. And then you can find me on Instagram. I post a lot on Instagram at katie underscore si underscore. You can come see our election adventures. I post a lot about my nephew and my dog. Thank you so much. This was brilliant. Next week, in honour of International Women's Day, we chat with award-winning director Lulu Wang, who's also featured on Condé Nast Traveller's 2024 Women Who Travel Power List. She chats with us about creating Amazon's new show starring Nicole Kidman, Expats, and the importance of using filmmaking to highlight untold stories. I'm Lale Arikoglu, and you can find me on Instagram at Lale Hanna. Our engineers are Jake Loomis, Nick Pittman, and James Yost. The show's mixed by Amar Lal. Jude Kampfner from Corporation for Independent Media is our producer. Chris Bannon is Condé Nast's head of global audio. See you next week. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker and host of The New Yorker Fiction Podcast. On the podcast, I ask a great contemporary writer to select a favorite story from the magazine's almost 100-year archive to read and discuss. Together, we delve into the story, exploring its themes, its style, and what makes fiction work. You can listen to authors like Otessa Moshfeg talk about why we write. Story, or attaching a story or creating a story, is this inclination that we all have to stop spinning. And you can hear writers like George Saunders discuss the nature of storytelling. On the first read, you accept these things as descriptions and they make you see the scene, but every line is a chance to inflect the reader's mind. You'll discover new favorite authors and read old favorites in new ways. Episodes of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast are released on the first of every month. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts.